CSN International presents to every man an answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. Again, that's 1-888-ASK-CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Hi, and welcome to Wednesday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. We're glad you've joined us. Looking forward to being with you. And we get together every weekday afternoon at this time, answering questions about the Bible from the Bible, looking at current events through a biblical perspective. What we hear in church on Sunday, is it even in the Bible at all? If you've been reading your Bible and pray you have, you come across something you don't understand, call us. If someone's asked you a question, you want to give them a good answer, you're not sure of the answer you want to give them, then you give us a call and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you expand your horizons. And so always a good time uh, every weekday afternoon. And so looking forward to answering those questions with you. Once again, uh, we want to remind you, go to your app store, download the new CSN radio app. You can listen anywhere, anytime. Uh, And so it's a great opportunity. Again, Uh, the CSN radio app at your app store. That's where you go. Joining me today, special guest, featured CSN speaker here, comes on after it, every man answer, Jeff Wickwire from Turning Point Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Hi, welcome. Hello, Mike. Good to be with you today. Looking forward to a good show, a lot of good questions. And, you know, the more I talk to people, the more I'm just getting questions asked me out there uh, in the public. Uh, because people, people's curiosity and really their concern over America, what, what seems to be going on in the, in the culture, uh, you know, the madness, the chaos, the confusion. So people are wondering, well, what does the Bible say about it? it you know, prophetically, what does the Bible uh, say about it as far as just speaking to this situation? Did Jesus say anything about it? Did, you know, does the New Testament talk about it? And so, Questions are out there, and they're increasing in my experience. So that's why we're here, to answer those Bible questions, because there is no more relevant book in all the world than the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. It brings God's Word to every problem, every situation, every crisis, every dilemma, every every perplexity. The Bible speaks to it. So encourage encourage you to call. we got some lines open. If you call right now, we'll get to you quickly. 8888-ASK-CSN. And Mike, I'm looking forward to it. Amen. Looks looks good. So we might as well go ahead and go to the phones. We have Nicole on the line in Rexburg, Idaho. Hi, welcome. Hello. Hi. My question is regarding um, remarrying after divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am a born-again believer, and my husband... Um, Long story short, he he had an affair for a couple years, and uh, when the truth came out, I was willing and wanting. I wanted reconciliation and to work towards forgiving forgiveness and making our marriage work and all of that. And he determined that he did not want to be married anymore, so we did get divorced. Um, and my question: I know what the Bible says in First Corinthians seven about, you know, a wife is not to depart from her husband. And if a woman, you know, is married to a husband who doesn't believe, if he's willing to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. Um, 
if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. And it says a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not sure where I land. I don't feel that I, I don't know that I fit in one of those categories. Um, and I'm wondering if I were to remarry eventually in the future, sometime in the future, would I be, would that be, would I be sinning in that case? Of course you wouldn't be sinning. You know, he, he's the one that chose to break the vows. Uh, and so you're, you're free according to God's word. And we have to understand again that uh, a lot of much of what Jesus spoke of there uh, was, and the whole idea of marriage was based on Levitical marriage, not the marriages that we have, unfortunately, today. But, but the thing is, nevertheless, he's the one that departed from you. Uh, it sounds like out of the goodness of your heart, you were willing to take him back. But you know, uh, you know, if the unbelieving depart, then they're gone. And so, uh, really, I, I would just uh, encourage you that. Um, God will bring you somebody else into your life. Your thoughts? Yeah, the, there's a in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us what uh, some have called the exception clause to divorce. It's in Matthew five thirty one. Jesus said, "It has been said." Of course, he's quoting the Old Testament now. Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, which is uh, a word that covers all sexual sin, sexual sin of any kind. The word fornication, pornuo, uh, is the Greek word. Uh, whoever uh, puts away his wife except for that cause causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. So that's called the exception clause. And Jesus is saying, if one of the two uh, spouses is unfaithful, then the offended spouse can leave the marriage. Now, the scripture also talks about forgiveness, and um, here is where I believe it falls upon the offended victim spouse as to how they want to handle it. Uh, the scripture gives both options. You can forgive, give it a go, see if somehow you can work it out, although it's a extremely, extremely difficult thing to work through. Because there's no greater betrayal than the, that marital betrayal. And as far as being a hurdle that is hard to get past, uh, it's a, it's a hoop that not, not everybody can jump through as far as forgiving and continuing on and making a go of it. However, I know that many, many have. And, uh, so it's really up to what the offended spouse believes they can handle. If they don't feel that they can handle a shot at reconciliation. And then Jesus said, you're, you're free to go. And, um, no, you're not under bondage as far as, uh, remarrying. You can remarry if you want because the vows were broken. And uh, so according to Jesus, uh, you're good to move on. So again, I just say it's, it depends on the offended spouse. I've seen both in my long pastoral career. I've seen both situations where the spouse did forgive and they did move on and they did work it out. I've seen them try to forgive and moved on for a while and decided they couldn't work it out. And I've seen them immediately walk away when 
the adultery happened. So it's up to you, Nicole, and uh, what you feel you can do and what you feel in prayer the Lord is telling you to do. But you're certainly not in bondage from remarrying, if you like. Right. And with all the incurable VDs that are out there right now, I mean, uh, Nicole, that would be a risky business. So, um, yeah, you know, when people want to do those kinds of things, unfortunately, that's what they do. So, uh, but uh, no, I wouldn't feel in any way guilty uh, in dating or getting remarried, dear. Hope that helps. Yes, so there is a verse that says if a if a man marries a woman who is divorced, that he's committing adultery. Well, that's talking about um, uh, you know somebody that is in multiple situations. But even if you remember, Jesus uh, met the woman at the well, and and he said to her, "Where is your husband?" And she says, "I have no husbands." And he said, "Well, that's the truth. Uh, you're currently shacked up, and you've had five husbands." And but Jesus did not condemn her over that, interestingly enough. Um, and, and so uh, we, we find that, again, uh, that divorce is not the unpardonable sin, but it certainly wreaks havoc on children's lives and friends' lives and things like that. But if somebody doesn't want to be married to you, dear, well, you know, there's not much you can do about that. It takes two to make a marriage, one to make a divorce, uh, and... and um, you know, again, uh, when it talks about that that you just cited, that is speaking of somebody that has uh, gone out and, and uh, you know, double-crossed their husband, things like that. Hope that helps. That does. Thank you very much. Can I ask one more sure. question? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'd like just your perspective on this. Um, I, I was talking to my father, who's also a born-again Christian, um, but we were talking about— um, like, I believe that, you know, God, Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed to pay for our sins, past, present, future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but as a believer, when, once you are saved, um, does, my dad is saying that God no longer looks at sin or those things that we do wrong as sin. It's basically bad behavior. And I was trying to explain to him that even as a believer, of course, we still sin, we do things that are wrong. And I, in my own life, there's times when I have to repent of something and ask for forgiveness, whether it's a bad attitude or my thoughts or something I did. And he's basically saying, it's just bad behavior. You do not need to confess your sin anymore because it's not seen as sin. Well, you you know, first John says, and this is the beloved disciple writing. He said, my little children, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, which is Christ. He's actually, he says, he says, if we confess our sins in First John, uh, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, and so the idea that after we're born again, we don't sin, it's just bad behavior. I don't think I've ever read that one in the Bible, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's real close to the doctrine of sinless perfection. And sinless perfection confuses um, the work of the blood of Christ over our lives. Real quickly, Nicole, there's two kinds of righteousness, imputed and imparted. Imputed is when we come to Christ and we're saved, and uh, we, we're covered in the blood. He, his, his blood covers all our sins, removes it from us, and we stand before God white as snow. I like to put it, it, it's as if God puts on 
sunglasses, S-O-N glasses, where he sees us through the red shed blood of Christ. And that is how he sees us. And that's the imputed. We, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our spiritual bank account. Okay. So in that respect, no, we're, we're sinless because we, it's been washed away. But imparted righteousness has to do with our daily spiritual growth. It is, it is the, the lifelong process of becoming more like Christ, uh, bringing forth the fruit of the spirit, uh, growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ. It's all about the ongoing work of sanctification and how uh, the Holy Spirit goes to work in our hearts to separate us from the world and day by day make us more and more like Jesus. Now, during that time, we're going to sin uh, because how many ways can you sin? It's it's almost hard to count them all. You, we sin with our thoughts. We sin with our words. We sin with our actions. We sin with our attitudes. There's so many ways we sin. Uh, and at any given moment, in our imparted, practical, walk out the faith, walk with Jesus, we're never perfect. We're not there. We, we'll only be perfect thoroughly when we are taken up to heaven. And John writes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. So until that day, we have imparted righteousness. The Holy Spirit, through sanctification, is working the righteousness of Christ practically, really, uh, realistically, into our character day by day. But, you know, we fall and skin our knee like any child falls and skins his knee and, um, you know, make mistakes. We have regrets. We do things we shouldn't do. And, and that's sin. And that, so John was talking to believers in 1 John 1, 9. He wasn't talking to lost people. He was talking to his, my beloved, to believers. Say if we, when, if we confess our sins. And if we say we have no sin, we lie. And if we confess our sins, we've got an advocate, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our heavenly attorney. So that's the difference. So you got to watch out for that sinless perfection doctrine because it's not true. No, I hope that helps, Nicole. That does help me. Thank you very much. God bless you, dear. Again, I would just go read First John uh, chapter 1. And it's almost at the end of the Bible, back by Revelation, First John, uh, read chapter 1. Uh, that'll help you a lot. Notice he says, my little children. He's not writing to the world or to a bar. He's writing to fellow believers. And that's what's really important because context is everything on that. Hope that helps. Stay in line. If you like, send you out uh, the movie Jesus. I think you'll enjoy that based on the book of Luke. And um, I think you'll enjoy it. Stay in line. We'll get you fixed up, Nicole. Okay? Thank you. God bless you, dear. Let's go to Cheryl, Carson City, Nevada. Hi, welcome. Hi there. I had a question regarding Revelation 20, and it has to do with Christ and um, the great white throne where um, he's judging people. Mm-hmm. And um, it's talking about the books. Um, I saw the um, the dead and great small and small standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
So I was curious about the plural of books because I had thought there were possibly only two books, the the Book of Good Works and the Book of Life. But then when I was um, Googling it the other day, I found a whole series of other books that are being said that they're being opened and people are being judged by. So I'm curious what your take is on this. Well, if you're not born again, those books are the things you've done wrong against God and the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's plural, books. I imagine there's a lot of books uh, for uh, individuals, (laughs) probably endless libraries, if you will. Uh, So we know that this is what you're going to find there. Now, who's in the great white throne judgment? I think that, that helps. Everybody that has lived outside of faith from the beginning when God created uh, Adam and Eve in the garden till the end of Revelation, everybody who has lived outside of faith will stand in that great white throne judgment. The Bible also tells us that those who accept Christ uh, will stand in that great white throne judgment that lived during the millennial reign of Christ. Um, They don't live again until that great white throne judgment, and they will stand before God and give an account of their life. Um, It isn't that during the millennial reign, uh, a believer dies, uh, pops in the ground, then pops back out and is ruling with Christ, reigning and ruling with Christ. doesn't say that. So it's going to be all those that died outside of faith and those who live during the millennial reign of Christ, will the books will be open and they'll be judged according to what they've done. And if they're in the book of life, that they accepted Christ, then the other books, um, I believe it's, it's a moot point. Uh, the book of life is the one you want to have your, your, your name in. And I believe that's written in when we accept Christ as our Savior. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. It tells us in Revelations 20, 13, uh, what the other plural books contain, I think. Contextually, it, it says, and they were judged every man according to their works. Well, we won't be, as believers, judged uh, according to our sinful works. Uh, the lost will. So it's telling us that, that plural, those plural books uh, contain the history of every single human being uh, the the works that they performed with the time and life that God gave them on earth, the, the sinful activities, the things that they uh, gave their lives to, their energy to, and their will to, and the sins they committed. So that's the plural books. Uh, the one book, the book singular, the book of life, is the one you want to be in, that's for sure, because uh, that's for the blood-washed child of God, uh, for whom Jesus is the advocate, the, the heavenly attorney, and his blood has covered your sin. And just by the way, uh, I think you mentioned this, Cheryl, but it is Jesus Christ himself that sits on this great white throne. And this is happening at the end of the millennium. Uh, this is the final judgment before the new Jerusalem uh, and the new heavens and the new earth uh, up here. And, uh, so this is it. This is the final, this is the final judgment of all eternity. This is the last one. And I think it's the most terrifying one. You know, for all of our 
listeners maybe driving in your car. Uh, you know, you're sitting in rush hour traffic. You've had a long, busy day. Uh, you're, you know, got a lot of things on your mind. But has it entered your mind recently that there is going to be a judgment? There's going to be a judgment. As surely as we sit here, uh, every single human being is going to be judged. It says the, the dead, the small, and the great, the who's who's and the not who's who's, the uh, the well-known, the not well-known, the celebrities, non-celebrities, everybody, the great political leaders and the people that uh, nobody ever knew, everyone is going to face a judgment. And Paul said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the Lord Jesus is the one that's going to be sitting on this throne and no longer is he the the mild lamb who allows himself to be beaten by men uh, so that he can die for our sins and rise from the dead. But no, now he's the Lion of Judah and now he is the judge of all mankind going all the way back in history. And it is an extremely solemn uh, moment and time in the history of the world and a uh, death and hell or end, end up right then going into the lake of fire. And uh, if you are not found written in the book of life, you're cast into the lake of fire. I didn't say that. Mike didn't say that. John wrote it as it was revealed to him. Very, very solemn words. So I hope that helps Cheryl. Amen. I hope that helps. And then I just have one other question. When it's talking about the martyrs, during the tribulation and in revelation six um it's saying that when the lamb when the lamb opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and they cried out in a voice so i'm guessing those souls are alive at that point but my question is and then Revelation 20, it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for the thousand years. So I was just trying to figure out, are they are they alive in the uh, chapter 6 since they're speaking out? Or I didn't understand that. No, it says that they are alive because it says that they were told that they need to rest a little while longer till their fellow saints that were uh, going to be martyred as they were joins them. And so, uh, but they, they um, uh, again, will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial reign for a thousand years as well. Uh, it's much better to go in the rapture, but for those that, that uh, uh, you know, rejected the, the Lord or, or didn't hear, uh, then I believe that uh, they'll get their chance there. But I've had people say, well, you know, if I miss the rapture, I'll just go ahead and die for Christ. Well, if you won't live for Christ, why will you die for him? And this is a, this is a real problem that we find. Jeff, your thoughts? Yeah, this is a, and this is a great passage uh, to teach against soul sleep because clearly yeah, there's yeah, no clear. soul sleep. These people were martyred, and now you see them totally aware so it's it's striking because you've got these people that were beheaded or somehow killed for their testimony of Christ, and they are conscious, they see, they hear, they feel, they have emotions, 
they they have a sense of the injustice that was done to them. They have all every every emotion and every feeling that somebody on earth would have. And uh, so, and and in Jesus teaching on the rich man and Lazarus, um, the poor servant that was outside of his house eating the crumbs from the rich man's table and full of sores and the dogs were licking his sores, the rich man dies. And in Hades, the place of judgment, the place of torment, he too was fully alert, had feeling, uh, had thirst, uh, had hearing, had sight. He looked across the great chasm and saw Abraham and uh, Lazarus sitting in Abraham's bosom. He had concern for people left on earth. So over and over again, we see in scripture that there is no such thing as soul sleep. You don't, you're, when you die, your soul doesn't sleep until the return of Christ. It immediately goes to one of two places, Hades or into the presence of the Lord. And these people, um, there they were in heaven. They had white robes. Uh, they were, they were fully aware of things. So man, the minute that your heart stops and, uh, you know, you, your body dies, you don't. Your soul goes on into one of those two places. Very powerful, Mike. Yeah. Hope that helps. It does. And thank you so much, both of you. Okay, Cheryl. And if you like, stay online. I'll send you up the movie Jesus. I think you'll enjoy that. And we'll go to Elijah in Missoula, Montana. I welcome. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. How can we help? Are you there? Yes, hello. Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. How may we help? Hey, how's it going? Um, I I got a question on uh, Genesis 6-3 where God was saying that, you know, his spirit wouldn't abide in people forever and their years would be numbered 120. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was... I was reading on it, and um, some say that it was talking about the flood, but I don't know if that would make sense. And then, you know, I, I thought it would obviously just meant that you wouldn't live past 120, but somewhere on the Internet it says someone's lived past 120, which I don't know is true because I've never met anyone until past 120. So I just, I, I just wondered if you had any more insight on it. Well, we know by the time of King David it was down to about 70 years. Um, now, of course— uh, Abraham lived, I, I believe it was, what was it, uh, Jeff, about 140, something like that? Time, yeah, uh, you know, somewhere in 42. a century and a half. Yeah, something. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so, but as a general principle, man doesn't live past one, really past much been 120 ever. We're coming up on a break, Elijah. We don't want you or anybody else to go away. We'll have a whole lot more right after this. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Brant along with Sherry here. And so you hear me doing these spots for MediShare, and Sherry actually helps me with them. I get people actually in person saying, okay, Brant, for real, do you recommend this? Like, yeah, uh, for real, I actually do. I'm not just saying stuff. So family, friends ask me about it. I'm like, yes, you should look into this. It's really a great option for a lot of people. That's what I tell people my experience has been. MediShare has been 
fantastic for me. Yeah. It, it's so different from health insurance in a lot of great ways, honestly. It, yeah, and see, a lot of people who've switched tell me that. It's the same reaction. They're very, very happy with it, and it gives them peace of mind and saves them a lot of money. I would tell people, look into it. Yep. Uh, so really, for reals, uh, if you want to talk to them, they're great to talk to. I think you'll be impressed and happy you looked into it. So um, you do the phone number. I'm actually tired of doing all the phone numbers. You, okay. Uh, call now. 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE. 855-91-BIBLE. Nice job. Thanks. More than ever, pastors need to feel people's love and support. Over the last few years, many pastors have seriously considered leaving their church. But 1 Thessalonians 5.12 instructs all churches and all Christians to show and share their deep appreciation for those who minister to them. There is no better time to do this than Pastor Appreciation Month in October. And there's no better way to do it than using the easy as one, two, three, bless your pastor materials that are available for free at blessyourpastor.org. That's blessyourpastor.org. Plus, the great news is that if your church uses the 123 Bless Your Pastor materials, the pastors at your church will be offered a $300 scholarship application to attend a Family Life Weekend to Remember Marriage retreat. What a blessing this will be to your pastors and their spouses. For free materials, go to blessyourpastor.org. That's blessyourpastor.org. Welcome you back to part two of Every Man Answer here on this Wednesday with Jeff Wickwire from Turning Point Church in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm your host, Mike Kessler, and we were speaking with Elijah when we went to our break asking us about the 120 years uh, God's Spirit not always striving with man. Jeff, your thoughts? Yeah, Elijah, it's a great verse. And uh, reading it real quickly for our listeners, the Lord said, uh, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he, uh, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, when you jump to verse thirteen, uh, the first part of that verse three is is explained. God says to Noah, "The end of all flesh has come before me, because the earth is filled with violence through them, and I will destroy them with the earth." So. The first part of verse three that you mentioned is God is basically saying, I've had it with the human race. We know that it was full of sexual immorality from other parts of scripture. Uh, we know that it was a, a generation that did not ever acknowledge God, that God was in none of their thoughts. And here, uh, God tells Noah, that they're filled with violence. It was an extremely violent culture. So God had come to the place where, you know, that, that invisible line in the sand that only God knows had been crossed. And he said, I'm going to have to judge the human race. Now, the 120 years doesn't have to do with the longevity of man. It has to do with how long before the flood happened. God, God is basically saying, I'm going to give the human race 120 years to repent. And if they don't repent, then uh, I'm, I'm judging. And uh, we're told by Peter in Second Peter, 
that Noah not only built the ark, but he was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah built with one hand and preached with the other hand. And what did he do? For 120 years, he warned of judgment. He warned of God's wrath coming. He warned of a coming flood. He seemed to his generation like a fool, like a crazy old guy down the street building a boat where no water is. Um, you know, he was the brunt of the jokes. Nobody took him seriously. We know for a fact that he didn't have one convert, only his family, eight people, uh, entered the ark when finally the day of the flood came. So they had 120 years. You know, I think about this as a preacher. Uh, you know, if I preach for 120 years with no converts, that would not be an easy task. But Noah did it. No converts. And so when the flood came, 120 years had elapsed and God said, okay, I gave you a season to repent. I gave you actually over a century to repent and you didn't do it. So it shows the long suffering of God, how long suffering God is. You know, we look at our country right now and I know myself and I'm sure millions of others who uh, do know Jesus have said, Lord, how in the world have you not judged this nation yet? Well, the answer is the long suffering of God. Peter also mentions the long suffering of God while he waited in the days of Noah for people to repent and they didn't. So verse three, uh, the number of years has to do with how long God gave them before the flood struck. Yeah. And I agree to that. I think that's true. And yet also, uh, man doesn't go much past ever 120. <laughs> so, um, if you're not going to get right in 120 years, you're not going to do it. So, but I do believe this here in verse three is clearly speaking of the time that it took Noah to build the ark and gave them that extra time to repent. Hope that helps. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, well, I just stay online, send you out the uh, movie Jesus. I think you'll enjoy that. Great for evangelism. Share it with your friends. And uh, stay alone. We'll get you taken care of. Let's go to Jeannie, Wilmington, North Carolina. Hi, welcome. Janine. Oh, yes. Hi there. Hi. How may we help? Hey. Um, I'm actually in Salisbury, Maryland. I used <laughs> to live in Wilmington, North Carolina. The gentleman that answered the phone said that he's answering from there. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I'm all goofed up here, so that's all right. But I'm glad you're on, Janine. How may we help? Oh, my goodness. I absolutely love you guys. I've been able to speak with you once before a long while ago when uh, COVID started. Um, I, I, I have a comment and I have a question. Okay. Um, the comment is, um, I, it, it, Pastor Mike, I absolutely adore your insight, especially your Christian view politically about things that you, God has blessed you all with such wisdom and um, such such informative information to share with all of us that it's just such an abundance of information. And I'm so very grateful for you guys. And I learned so much from all of you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I uh, actually, Pastor Jeff, I used to live in Fort Worth, Texas. I so wow. wish, and this was in 2009 to 2011 when I had to leave there. Um, and I so wish that I knew of you. I wish I knew of the church. 
I would have then come to Jesus even sooner. Uh, I didn't come to him until later in my life, um, which was um, almost six years ago now, uh, after I left Texas and, and went through some ugly, ugly times. Um, but, of wow. course, what I learned from one of the pastors on the radio station earlier, that, you know, you have to get to, um, it's in those darkest times where uh, God shines through the most, where you see him the most. And uh, But I, it, the things would have been a whole lot different if I would have been able to go to your church back then and knew of you back then. <laughs> well, so, thank you, guys. you know, you um, never know what God's going to do. Oh, please, exactly. Um, you know, I, leaving from Wilmington, North Carolina, to here where I'm at now, I always use the one phrase in a uh, worship song that I hear all the time is, um, God literally stepped into my Egypt and took me by the hand and he marched me out in freedom into the promised land. And for me to be here and to know Jesus now the way I do and just continuing to learn, it's just, it's incredible. And I like to shout it from the rooftops, <laughs> um, which brings me to my question, pastors. Um, there is a, a popular pastor I like to um, see videos about, um, including you guys as well, <laughs> um, that uh, I learned in 1 Corinthians 14.35. It speaks of women not speaking in church. Um, I don't have a desire to speak in church. I don't have a desire to speak in front of people at all. However, um, I would have a desire um, just simply because I am, when we're doing our worship songs and I am so feeling the words and feeling the Holy Spirit working through me, um, where there's a lot of people that are older, more mature Christians um, they are just very reserved and very um, quiet. Um, I will um, want to sing to the top of my lungs as well as raise my hands and give him all the glory, um, as well as when the pastor is, is speaking and, and teaching us. Um, I Sometimes I can't help myself, and I holler out an amen when I'm in agreement, total agreement with what he's sharing so is that also what this pastor is referring to um, about 1 Corinthians 14.35? Well, we don't know who, who exactly what, what he's referring to, but we can tell you what the Bible has to say. It's just where Paul writes to Timothy that a woman is not to usurp a man's authority in the church. This was uh, evident in the Old Testament. It was evident in the New Testament. And that is the picture that we find. It says that Eve was deceived. Adam willfully partook of the tree. And so not to allow uh, um, really uh, men to be deceived, to be deceived, uh, uh, you know, they're not to, the women are not supposed to be teaching um, uh, in, in that position over a man in the fellowship. Now, I know there are some women who are under the authority of their husbands sometimes that teach. I don't really have a problem with that. I think of all the Christian women missionaries that are on the foreign field. They're the only Christian voice in an entire community. I thank God for them. But I think as a general rule, we have to be very much follow along. We don't find any women pastors in the Old Testament. We don't find any women 
pastors in the New Testament. Well, what about Deborah in the Old Testament? She wasn't a pastor. She was a judge, and um, uh, it wasn't pertaining the things of the temple. Your thoughts? Yeah, just reading out of 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor do you usurp authority over the man. Now, I think that that gives the reason or, or sort of the line of demarcation. Uh, the woman usurping authority over the man. Uh, that you must do if you're a pastor. And I think the prohibition is on women being pastors. Uh, because as Mike said, there's no pastors in the New Testament that are women. Um, they're just not there. Uh, there are women involved in ministry. There are women involved that were an incredible help to Paul, to, to Jesus. Uh, they, you find their, uh, being involved in ministry in many different places, but you never find a female pastor. And, um, then you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 34, let your women keep silence in the churches for it's permitted, uh, not permitted for them, uh, to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience. Now, you got to remember the Corinthian church was chaotic. Uh, the Corinthian church was having all kinds of out of order, uh, things going on that, you know, they were exercise, they were abusing the gift of tongues where Paul had to give an order for that. You know, if you're going to speak, let it be by two or three and let there be an interpreter, but not everybody at once. Uh, the, the Corinthian church was very gifted, but they were very immature. And so there was a lot of things that needed to be uh, ironed out and that needed to receive some order. Decency, it said, let all things be done decently and in order. And that was really the catchphrase for the Corinthian church, decently and in order. So I think that it could be very well that women were um, speaking out, interrupting things, uh, uh, usurping themselves over the men who were leaders in the church, Things were getting out of, out of hand that way. And so Paul had to come in and bring again some order. And, uh, one thing that he makes very clear is that a woman should not be a pastor. But we find in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, that women are not ordered to literally say nothing or do nothing because it says every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. That is even all one as if she were shaven. So bottom line is, I don't see Paul there telling women, you can't have a part in anything um, that is verbal. But his main thing is, you can't be a pastor. You can't usurp authority over men. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, it's impossible to be a pastor without usurping authority over both genders. You, you have to. So if a woman assumes the role of a pastor, she's got to go where scripture really does not let her go. She's got to exercise authority over men, and that's where the line is drawn. Hope that helps. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm completely in agreement and totally understand that. I, I was um, nervous about me, you know, just in agreement when our pastor is speaking and reading from the word um, that I am 
you know, I'll just shout out or blurt out an amen or a hallelujah in agreement. And but then I I was hearing this pastor speaking, and he was, um, you know, he was just speaking about women should be silent. So that that's where my concern was. I'm totally in agreement as well. Is uh, that women should not have that kind of authority in the church. I am. I am on that same level, on that same page as that, um, with no no desire to be there, of course. And, of course, also in Scripture um, where um, that the uh, women should submit to your husbands, um, wives should submit to your husbands, and, um, and it gets taken out of context. So I'm in agreement with that. Um, but with me feeling that power of the Holy Spirit just moving in me and I'm shouting out a hallelujah or an amen, I, I wanted to know if that was really wrong for me to do no, that. No, that's, that's fine. Wrong. No, that's okay, dear. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stay online. We'll send you out a book. Uh, or Excuse me. We'll send you out the movie Jesus we have. I think you'll enjoy that, okay? You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. God is good. And stay in line, Janine. We'll get that uh, to you. Let's go to Daniel in Connecticut. Hi, welcome. Hi, thank you. In uh, Jacob's blessing, Israel's blessings to his sons, is the blessing to Judah a foreshadowing of Christ? I believe it is. Uh, your thoughts? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Genesis 49, verse 9. Jacob is speaking to, to Judah, <clears throat> and um, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Now, here comes the messianic portion of Jacob's blessing over Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter being a symbol of uh, a king. It's what a king used. Uh, you know, he would have a scepter in his hand, and if you approached him, and he held out the scepter to you, like, for instance, Esther approached uh, the king, and he held out the scepter, which was a sign of you can approach and you can speak. And so it's a it's a symbol of a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Clearly messianic. We know that Jesus did come from the tribe of Judah, and uh, so, yes, it's absolutely a messianic uh, prophecy there in, in Jacob's blessing over Judah. Very powerful. Jacob, there he was on his deathbed, not long for this earth. And yet he prophesied amazingly in that condition. I mean, God really moved on him. And this is one of the great examples, messianic prophecy way back in the times of the patriarchs and it all came to pass just like God said. Amazing. And uh, again, one of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that he would come from the tribe of Judah. So very important. And again, when you look at all the prophecies concerning Jesus, only Jesus himself could have ever fulfilled all those prophecies. Hope that helps. Thank you. Yes. God bless you. Stay online if you like. Send you out the movie Jesus. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's go to Brock, Washington. Hi, and welcome. Hey, hey, guys. Good afternoon. Um, I'm not sure if you saw my question played up, but it had to deal with uh, Galatians and uh, be the fifth chapter, 19 through 21. Uh, curious if one of those um, perpetrators of uh, fornication or adultery 
or uncleanness, can that be a Christian? Your thoughts? Well, yeah, a Christian can fall into sexual sin. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to me that when Paul lists the works of the flesh, uh, right before he introduces the uh, the fruits of the Spirit, the first things he deals with are sexual sins, all of them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Those first four are sexual sins. And um, you got to remember, who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to a church. And the whole message is, if you back up to verse 16, he's giving us the way to avoid the the sins of the flesh. And that is by walking in the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because then he goes into describing the age-old battle that rages in, in the bosom of every born-again child of God. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. But until we go to heaven, we're still in a tent of flesh. And that flesh can sin. And uh, so the flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit lusts against the flesh. They're contrary to each other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So then he delineates on the lust or, or the, the uh, works of the flesh. Again, the first four are sexual. And he's wanting us to know, starting in verse 16, the way you defeat these things is by every single day getting filled with the Spirit. That's the key. you got to start your day with the Word of God every day. I don't know how any Christian can survive in this toxic, degenerate, depraved, seductive uh, world and culture that we live in without getting in the Word of God every single day and filling the tank with God's Word and praying and spending time with God. Because if you do that, uh, you're not going to be near as inclined to uh, fall to the the, uh, the lust of the flesh, whatever they may be. So I hope that that helps uh, helps you with your question there, Brock. And you find a mirror of it in First Corinthians chapter six, as Paul is talking to the church at Corinth uh, about the same issues, and he says that do not be deceived. He's not talking to the world; he's talking to the church at Corinth. And the same things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, yeah, if a person wants to depart from the faith, um, I, I think it's pretty clear here. I don't see, I don't, I don't see any wiggle room. I don't see any exceptions to this. It's very clear. Now, that doesn't mean that at times we all haven't had um, temptations and and sin for a season. But when it becomes a lifestyle, I believe that's where we get into real, real trouble. And I would be very cautious to ever say anybody, oh, you can just go ahead and stay in your sorcery and in your jealousies and, you know, your selfish ambitions and your fornication. You're still saved. You're going to heaven. No, it doesn't say that. And I don't know how people come up with that. They must mark a lot of verses out of their Bible. I hope that helps. I'm just curious. So how do you harmonize that with what Jesus said in red font in Luke 16, 18? Okay. Luke sixteen eighteen. Yes. Uh, reading it here real quickly. Uh, Luke sixteen eighteen says, "Whoever puts away his wife marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery." 
okay. Uh, I, I don't see the connection. Maybe Mike does. No, because that, that, those are all forgivable. If you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. But these people enjoy the sin they're in. These people stay in the sin they're in. And I think this is where the real, the real problem comes from. Because it's very clear here. Um, you know, I mean, we, we probably all have uh, either acquaintances, people we work with, even relatives that are practicing one of these things, living with someone they're not married to, um, involved in drunkenness, involved with all kinds of things. Um, uh, th- this, is, these are, this is talking about an embedded lifestyle. So I hope that helps, Brock. Uh, what about remarriage celebrated in a church for a second or third occasion? Is that okay? Well, again, we... Uh, we well, go ahead, Jeff. I, what I would say, what I would say is, um, you got to know the behind the scenes story. In other words, for instance, you, you don't know why the divorce has happened. You don't know what has brought the people getting married to this place. Uh, there's a lot of things that you don't know. So, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to, uh, you know, see something like that and pass you know, a, a, a judgment if I don't know the background story, uh, because we don't generally know what has all happened, uh, why the divorces took place, any of that. And um, again, God does forgive. And I'm not saying, well, because he forgives and just go ahead and do it and, and sin. And, you know, that goes against the teaching of scripture as well, but he does forgive. And, um, once they say, I do, it's done. And I do believe that when they say, I do, in God's eyes, it's done. But again, when you look at, you know, multiple marriages up there, uh, getting remarried again, you don't know the background. You don't know the background story. You don't know uh, where they've been, uh, how they've repented, if they've repented any of it. So uh, I, I'm hesitant to make a real scathing or, you know, just, just a universal judgment if I don't know all the facts. Yeah, and something else, when Jesus talked about that, you could be a polygamist. You could marry more than one wife. In fact, which of the Old Testament patriarchs didn't have more than one wife, including King David, Saul, uh, uh, um, uh, it's, uh, uh, Solomon? Uh, look at them all. Um this is one of the things. If you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't divorce her. You build her a little house out and back, and and that's what the way it went. Uh, so we have to take everything into context here. Um, but divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And again, uh, when you when we read this here, uh, this is this is speaking of a, I believe of a very important part. Now, God hates divorce. But the Bible says he also hates six things and seven things are an abomination to him in the Old Testament, and divorce is not listed there. You know, those that uh, spread discord among the brethren, these things, kinds of uh, things like that. So, uh, again, I think we have to be, be forgiving. I think we have to be loving. 
But we want to be very careful of these pitfalls. Stay on the line, Brock, if you like. Matt, Bob, uh, Ken, and Tom. Call us back. We'll pitch on first thing tomorrow. For more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 